This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Welcome to Connect with Community Waikato on Free FM 89.0. I'm Holly Snape from Community Waikato and have Peter Humphreys with me here today. How are you, Peter? Very good, Holly. Kia ora. Thank you for coming in. Um, Peter is the previous Deputy Chair of Community Waikato. So, mm. Peter, you've been on the board for about five years. Yep, it's just coming up to my six years now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, pretty good innings there. Um, although I must say we were devastated to lose you. <laughs> but you're going on to do some pretty amazing things and, and we're going to talk about that today. But um, I've got you here too to start perhaps with a little bit of the background and where you've come from because the accent flags you weren't born in New Zealand. Yeah, I came from a small village called Blainafistaniog in North Wales. We had the highest rainfall in Wales, really? in Great Britain in fact. <laughs> but we also had the highest suicide rates in Great Britain as well at one time. Really? Yeah, it was a um, mining town originally and there was about 11 mines and suddenly they all closed down. We, um, the miners were mining for slates for the roofs in Britain and the products changed and the export market died so they stopped mining. So it was basically quite a redundant mining town, lots of domestic violence and lots of uh, like basically a mist of alcohol over the village yeah. yeah how old were you when you were living there it varied like I, w- I was in and out of um foster care um my first um placement was at the age of six months but it was still in the same village and then I went into permanent care when I was about eight or nine years old with my brother and we shifted from that village to a um seaside resort which was beautiful I mean wow we, we had <laughs> sea to swim in lots of little jobs fun fairs and all kinds of stuff so um yeah the environment changed things for us and we, yeah. were, we were really lucky we both went to a kid's home initially then i started washing dishes in a hotel and then um, the people that owned the hotel gene and cliff who have both passed away now they sort of fostered me and then i eventually stayed with them for many years um, oh wow yeah, yeah and did you say your brother ended up did he end up with you as well there? yeah yeah my four sisters stayed at home and mum could cope with them yeah um, but with me and my brother we were just always into trouble and stuff like that we were, <laughs> yeah so it's funny because I just you don't strike me as a you know naughty boy like you're such a gentle soul now so oh, it was funny the reason we were eventually sent into care my brother ran into the back of a bakery and he came out with a five pound tin of corned beef and we ran away down the road with the baker chasing us he didn't catch us but he knew where we was because everybody yeah. knew the, um, everybody in the village so we went down the woods and we um, tried to eat it. We opened it and we tasted it. And it was so bloody salty, we couldn't eat it. So we carved it into boats and it sank, of course. And, <laughs> and then we forgot, went home and forgot everything about it. And suddenly the local sergeant turned up at our house. We were about 80 years old at this time. And we ended up having to go before a magistrate. Oh, man. <laughs> on with an eight-year-old but then what happened was the sergeant stood up and he says these boys were so hungry they ate five pounds of corned beef (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so we ended up in care permanently. <laughs> wow. But it, but it was probably the best thing that happened um, for our whole family, really. You know, my mum wasn't coping mm. and we were both going to school, you know, with plastic shoes, sandals and all that kind yeah. of stuff, not fed properly and all that kind of stuff. We ended up in state care and we were really lucky. It was quite good care at that time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were, uh, it was probably the best move that happened to did, us. Really. Did you maintain that relationship with your mother and your sisters? Oh, yeah. My yeah. mum was, um, she was on the benefit because she was living in a council house and mm. then every Saturday she would come down on the bus to the other village to see us and mm. we were teens at that time and we didn't want our mum no. but it was yeah. you know, she still did it you yeah. know and all that kind of stuff so no we were really lucky she and um, she was always really close to us yeah know? yeah so what did you end up doing after you started washing dishes? And, mm. and I saw in your bio, you were chefing for a period of time. Yeah, um, I went to catering college. Um, I did. Um, I started cooking in the hotel and I um, got into pastries and stuff like that and doing dessert trolleys and stuff. It was all pretty basic in those in the 80s, remember? All, yeah. all the cooking was basics. <laughs> so um, I did that and then I went off to catering college for a year and then dropped out. And then I was always pushing the boundaries as a teenager, drinking and all that. Probably about 17, 18, took off for London and yeah. um, ended up getting a job in a hotel near Heathrow Airport. Wow. And I worked there for a couple of years as a grill chef in a coffee shop there. So, um, yeah, so I did um, chefing there, yeah. You ended up meeting a Kiwi girl, mm, yeah. which is what has brought you to New Zealand. But yeah. at what point you know, in your story did you guys meet? It was about 18 months into me working at the hotel in Heathrow. I was looking for a travelling companion, and so was she. So we advertised in New Zealand House. This is what you used to do in those days, yeah. you know. And me and my friend were going to go off uh, in a van, and we wanted two girls to go with us <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as travelling companions. So we put adverts in, and she answered my ad, and then we met, and then... And just sort of things fell from there. I remember, yeah, um, meeting her outside New Zealand house and then going off for chocolate cake, even though I didn't like chocolate cake at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to eat it, but I couldn't. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and then she wanted, I always wanted, to, I never wanted to stay in Britain. I just had this thing mm. about, so initially we took off around Europe and we went off in the van and then ended up in Yugoslavia, Germany, all over wow. the place. And then we sort of separated from the other couple and we came back but we hitchhiked back from Yugoslavia through Italy and France and um, over through um, the Channel Islands and then eventually back in Britain. And then she wanted to come back to New Zealand and I was really keen to come here. But the only thing I'd heard of New Zealand and seen on TV was the Springboks tours. And there was oh. all these people with helmets fighting <laughs> in the middle of fields. <laughs> I was wondering, what the hell am I getting myself into? <laughs> um, which is it's interesting because had you been in New Zealand at that time, you would have been one of the ones <laughs> yeah, yeah. out on that field. I think I would have been standing next to Dave McPherson. <laughs> you would have, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, you know, quite quite funny how it all comes about. Mm. So you guys ended up moving back to New Zealand or moving to New Zealand. Yeah. And how, how did you find it when you came here? It was like a cowboy. T we moved to Nelson initially before going to Christchurch, and they had the verandas over the streets, and it was yeah. really and everything was closing on Sundays and yeah. all that kind of stuff. It was a sleepy old sunny town, yeah. eh? Actually, sunny Nelson and coming from the highest rainfall. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And and the other thing, there was a good work life balance. You know, they yeah. just seemed because the shops were shut, so nobody, everybody was having a recreational time with their families on the weekend. Yeah. So it was actually nice. It was like it's really nostalgic to think. Yeah. 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 
Now it is. It's um. It's a beautiful spot there. But um, Christchurch is a pretty stunning city as well. Mm. Yeah, we shifted down there because Maria started a degree in education and psychology, um, and she wanted to be a social worker. So we mm. went to Christchurch and. Um, we stayed down there for a wee while while she'd finished a degree and I just did odd jobs, did demolition and stuff and things like that. Then we returned to Nelson and I wanted a change in career and I wanted to go fishing. Mm. So um, I decided I would um, do the fishing course and then I found a boat because I could cook. It was, yes. it was often on the fishing boats, it was really challenging to get on there unless you were family or you knew somebody really well. Mm-hmm. So I got onto the boats and when we were fishing and um, we were fishing for um, Orange Ruffy down in Chathams and stuff, we'd go out for about 12 days at a wow. time, a crew of 16. So I did that for a wee while. And then suddenly um, we had a child. Um, yeah, I would have been about 28 when we had Shan. Yeah. So um, Maria was at home and we were living on a farm and there was another lass living with us and she just had a child at the same time. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there, um, it was good company for Maria and um, there was another baby in the house. So there was two babies in the house. And what we saw was um, Shan wasn't developing at yeah. the right pace and we questioned, we asked Planker and we asked the doctor and nothing, um, they said, oh, it's just everybody goes at a different rate. And um, I came back um, about when Shan was about 12 months off a trip and um, the girl had moved out by this uh, time and it was just me and Maria on the farm. Yeah. And um, we were sitting there one night and suddenly she had a seizure and we didn't know what it was or anything like that. No. And mm. she was 12 months old, like just yeah. a baby. Like just a baby, yeah. Terrifying. Mm, absolutely. So we ended up going to um, Nelson Hospital with mm. her and she came out of it. And she, we, when we thought about it, she may have been having little absence seizures all the way yeah. through from an earlier age, but we didn't even know about it. Of course about you it. don't. Yeah. 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 So we ended up, um, what's the name? We made an appointment with a pediatrician and they, um, we basically went in and we had our appointment and he said, um, when you go out of this room, everybody will be carrying on with their lives, but your lives will never be the same again. Wow. So um, we went uh, home and stuff, and I decided I couldn't do the fishing anymore because yes. um, I didn't oh, want to Oh, 12 days at a time mm, just would yeah. be way too much. And it was two trips on as well. You'd do yeah. a 12-day, two days off, 12-day on, so it was a long yeah. spell. So, um, yeah, so we um, discovered we had a child with a disability. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and over time, because that dis- disability is quite profound, the, you know, mm, yeah, yeah. this isn't just, um, and I shouldn't say just, but like an e- epilepsy, um, but but fully capable uh, of doing uh, other things and controlled through medication. Like this is an ongoing... She, she's high needs. Um, she's yeah. still in nappies at 34 years of age. Um, still has uncontrolled seizures every now and again. We have to give yeah. her medication to bring her out of it because um, she goes into status epilepsy, yeah. which means yeah, your whole status is epileptic. Um, and after 10 minutes, we have to give a suppository call an ambulance after yes. 15 or whatever. there's all those things yeah. um, we have to feed them most of her runny food and stuff like that she will p- finger pick and all that kind of stuff no she's hi- um, high, high, ne- high needs yeah. and so she's lived with you since the whole way through hasn't she yeah we try we um a few years ago we, we thought oh we might get a flat for her we rented a flat in Enderley yeah. and we were going to get staff to come in but the resources were we were ending up having two houses yes. uh, and it was just a waste of time so me and Maria both decided for the next 20 years or so while we're capable that we would um, look after her and she would live with us and she loves being with us she hates going away you know she likes going to a day program 
She goes to a regular respite as well because yeah. we need the break. Of course, mm. yeah, absolutely. Mm. And it's good for her to maintain, I suppose, um, other stuff uh, yep. outside of the home. Yeah. So yeah. it gets used to, you know. Exactly. You know, and it's it's interesting because we've got two sort of um, sides going on now. This so, is this is the beginning mm. of what ends up becoming quite a crusade for you and, mm. you know, in your life in terms of, um, trying to make change systemically yep. for people in situations like yourself. Yep. But you've also then managed a, a changing career through the rest of your time. So you were like in the, you were like a fire, a fireman yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a long time. And, and I, I was really touched by your story when you talk about, you know, supporting um, young people, maybe like an 18-year-old suddenly mm. exposed to a deceased person for the first time and the trauma, yeah. you know, that that can have and, and how, you know, when you're obviously a very empathetic person naturally, but, you know, that, that their need or desire to be able to provide the right kind of supports for people in those situations. Mm. I think... Um I'm a social worker, you know, I've, I've got the qualification, but I think inherently I'm a social worker. Yes, I think so. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, it's a bit strange. If I was walking down the streets of London or whatever, and if somebody with mental health issues was walking on the other side, they'd come across and talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> like, it's yeah. not it's what I, anything that I've got a sign or anything. It's yeah. just, they seem to come towards me, and I seem to also look for causes as well. Yeah. It's not um, like, yeah, so I think, uh, uh, yeah, like I always say, I grew up with a social worker. I, um, I became one. I actually married one as well. So, yes. <laughs> so, we did have my son. Um, he, um, when we moved him to Narawaya, we lived in Narawaya for about 25 years. Yeah. And he went to Narawaya High. And when we've had that interview with the principal, we all, me and Maria sat there with Adrian and um, the principal said, oh, what do you want to be? And he said, a social worker. And me and Maria looked at each other. We said, no! <laughs> 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 but now, now he's an IT technician, yeah. so <laughs> and and he's probably a social worker at heart still as well. Oh, very, you really know, empathetic with yeah. people and has a can talk to anybody. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And that's actually a real skill in IT. Not everyone has those. No, skills. no, that's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, um, but you you also then became as a social worker the um, manager of the Christian Night Shelters mm. in Hamilton City for many years. Yeah, I left. Um, I finished my degree in two thousand and eight, and um, my social work degree bachelor of social science um, and I was looking for a job and I wanted something um, grassroots uh, and uh, I wanted to be on the cold face yeah and the job at the night shelter came up and um, I went for my interview and it was an old Chinese restaurant on um, Ross Trevor Street and 18 guys were sleeping in the in one, this one room and I had my interview, um, it was Lindsay Cumberpatch, ex-CEO yes. of DV Bryant Trust, and I think it was Charles Flanagan who donated a hell of a lot of time to um, the night shelter. Mm. Um, they interviewed me, and Lindsay says, oh, this is where we keep our guests. And um, I says, I wouldn't keep my guests in here. And he says, no, we don't want to either. Mm. So we had this driving um, thing that we would move them out of there, um, yeah. and for the next from basically um, when I took over in 2008 to 2019 when I left that was my goal yeah. uh, give them a good quality of service social work and um, what's name support them but also move them from that environment yeah. so um, yeah and I was look, really lucky to have a board that was supportive of that and they let me go really they just mm. um, let me loose and um, I think they realised I could do it yes. and they just um, just let me go and yeah and I was just um, 
sort of allowed to do things. I became co-chair of the New Zealand Coalition to um, End Homelessness. I started writing a la- an article, a monthly article for the Hamilton Press. Yes. So all those things were all gearing up to um, inform about homelessness and also to do that social work, community social work, mm. and inform people about this is why often these pe- uh, people get into this situation yeah. and this is how we should be treating them and all that kind of stuff, yeah. And I think you, you did a lot um, for exactly that, for really heightening people's awareness mm. um, of homelessness, A, as an issue in Hamilton, because mm. a lot of people for a long time thought there was no problem, yeah. and then they thought the problem was significantly bigger than mm. than it was, yeah. and, and there's been that lack of understanding yeah. of the different sort of um, home light or situations that people are in yeah but you've you've always had quite a steady voice about understanding um what the landscape is in the city Mm. and what the needs were yeah in 2017 bill english came he was a leader at the time and he said our homelessness had been uh, solved in hamilton and um i disputed that and it went on the national radio and then and in the herald on front page managed disputes yes the leader um I could see um, on the ground, you, you can only see when you're on the coal face what's happening. Yes. It was getting worse and much worse. Um, do, prior to that, it was sort of steady as she goes, similar amounts of people sleeping on the streets, similar amounts of people coming from different mm. um, homes, but it was actually getting really bad. And I could see it. I could see this next thing that where the motels, we had the Home and House Report in 2010, where it suggested that we um, get rid of the big houses and um, put Coro and Nana in into little tiny little houses mm. those big houses were the emergency accommodation yes. when the family that moved on broke down they would go back to those big houses you know so yes. we had a little pool of emergency accommodation and that sort of disappeared so i could see all that mm. happening and i was involved in it because of the new zealand coalition and stuff like that and because of running the shelter it's difficult though eh, when you can see what the bigger picture is and then people who are disconnected but mm. the ones making the decisions yeah just keep driving forward with things that are just hmm. you know and it's interesting because you know if we if we go back to um you know your home life it you know all through this you're also um challenging you know the different governments because you've been through yeah. several <laughs> yeah um around being primary caregivers of yeah. a, a an individual with a um significant sort of care needs and as parents, you didn't, you were unable to access the same kinds of resources as if you'd put her in a home, yep. and she was getting care externally. We were lucky because um, mo- most um, people um, who have. Um, disabled children end up the mum ends up looking after them and the husband often goes yes. we were lucky we had two of us I have a friend I had a friend over who passed away a couple of years ago over in Thames Cliff Robinson um, and he had two um, children with disabilities so he was an exception often it's the it's mm. the mum it's the woman it's, that does all the caring but we were lucky and also we had a bit of a, a swap around I became the caregiver um, for many years um, taking the kids to kindergarten and I'd yeah. work doing some hand man stuff during the day or escorting mm. youth offenders and all that kind of stuff I had a variety of different things I could slot in during the day and Maria had a job and she needed that um, this, she needed this stimulation yes. um, whereas I was quite happy doing the kids side of things and yeah. so we were lucky around that stuff but during that time I also had the time to battle for things you know like for instance I remember arguing on the radio with Lockwood Smith when Shan was three and a half. I wanted her to go to kindergarten like her peers, yes. but she couldn't go because she was having seizures and she needed teacher aid and the kinder couldn't have her there because there were the safety issues. Yeah. So I was arguing for that. Um, and the other stuff was 
um, the services are very disjointed and when you have a child with disability you've got speech therapy you've got um, OTs you've mm. got a neurologist all that stuff pediatricians but it, there's nothing that's unified and that's working it's all basically siloed yeah. and parents are sitting there twiddling their things what can I do what can I do so we decided that we would do a thing called a neurotherapy program, which is based on um, a Glenn Doman program. He's an American guy, mm. um, and it's called What to Do About Your Brain and Your Child, you know? It's like from the 70s, 80s. Yeah. But we needed something to do. So we basically... Um, had a program at home that we would do and we had volunteers that used to come in and that we had about 20 volunteers that would come on off and on we had school teachers we had nurses all kinds yeah. of stuff and they would come in in there and move shan's limbs and stuff like that and um what's his name because what he believed was that you had to, a, a brain injured child had to do it more um, they had to crawl more than a normal child and all that kind of stuff yeah. to be able to do um to um, link all the brain cells or whatever but at yeah. the time it all sounded really good and it was something for us to do yes. we weren't twiddling our thumbs and also for Shan the social aspect yes. of it and for us as well and she's being touched like you know yeah. that, that mm. sort of stuff's so important as well oh, for yeah. you know humanity yeah. and yeah she's the most social thing yes um, her syndrome um, is was originally called the happy puppet, happy puppet syndrome, but um, what's the name? It got changed to the Angelman syndrome um, name. But uh, what's the name? She is really happy. Happy, you know. She has yeah. the taxi gate and she waves her arms. She so she um, and I yeah. think for, through that socialization, through that program, we only did it for about a year. Mm. But it gave us something to do. Um, it sort of um, yeah felt that like we were accomplishing something. It sort of kept us linked in with the community. Yeah. And it also um, what's the name? It give Shan that really social um, being, um, you know. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. So at what point, though, did you decide to take the government to court? It was um, 2000, this is, um, yeah, Shan was going to the Waipa satellite class, it's a um, satellite class off Hamilton North Special Needs School, because we lived in Narawaya, and it was, um, she was fitting in quite well and stuff. One day, a boy turned up, and he had a tricycle, and Shan would have been about it would have been 2006, so I'll have to do the calculations. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> she was born in 88. Um, so she was, um, there was a boy turned up and he had a tricycle. And I thought, shit. This, oh, I'm, Get her right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want one of those for Shan because she got on it. She wouldn't go in the right direction, but she could pedal wow. <laughs> with, a t with a teacher aide helping her. And I saw her going around the, uh, the yard, you know. And I got there and I asked the parents, oh, where did you get the bike from? And she, they said, oh, um, my, our son's on ACC. And the ACC bought it for him. So I approached the health department, or the Ministry of Health, yep. and I said, oh, I'd like a bike for my daughter. We, we were both on basic incomes, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I, um, I was working part-time, Maria was working full-time, lots of expenses, like nappies galore, you know? Yeah. I, and, um, I, and they said, no, it's, you don't get it unless you're on ACC. So I started in 2006 taking a case, um, what's named to the Human Rights Tribunal about, or the Human Rights Commission at that stage, um, about um, the, this, the discrimination from ACC yes, to, to vote, yeah, vote yeah. health funding. Um, and we, we started, I started getting into phone conversations with lawyers and stuff like, and phone conferences and it was just getting out of hand and beyond my, beyond my um, ability, you know? And I could see that and then I approached the Human Rights Commission again and I said, is there anything else I can do? And they said, oh, we've got this other case. Would you like to be part of this? And it was the um, payments for family caregivers case. Mm. So I said, yeah. And so that's where the court case originally started from. Wow. So there was about um, seven of us originally um, that were uh, doing a class case against the government. 
and it based um we could have strangers coming into the house and they could be paid and um what's the name but the family members were allowed to be um yeah. to do it it wasn't a written policy anywhere and lots of the ngos uh, lots of the um sort of health boards were doing their own little thing they would allow and family members to be paid and others wouldn't yeah there was about 272 exceptions to this um this rule? Hot, <laughs> the, the rule uh, somebody yeah. somebody realized they didn't want it to uh, the floodgates to open um so they um what yeah so we took them started taking them to the human rights tribunal seven of us and then two of the plaintiffs two of the disabled people joined us as well mm. um Stuart and imogen and then um we um argued this um point about yeah we argued this point that um f family caregivers sh um should be paid um uh, um as just as um as good as strangers you know if they're yeah. um, working in the house looking after their disabled um, adults um so um yeah so um there was 272 exceptions so we started taking it to the court we were really lucky we got a um, representation from the office of human rights proceedings wow um and um our um, lawyer who's a qc or kc now um francis Choi child was um john minto's sister oh wow yeah <laughs> and so she had really social um yes. and she's been working with child poverty groups and all kinds of yeah. stuff you know so um they started taking it to the human rights tribunal and we um, were victorious there. The judges agreed with us. Um, so the Ministry of Health appealed, and mm. we ended up in the High Court. We were victorious there, and um, they appealed again. So we went to the High Appeal Court. Is that the last court? Is the Appeal Court like a... No. Wow. You can, yeah, okay. you can go to the Supreme Court. <laughs> after. The, so five judges in the Appeal Court in Wellington. We sat there and then went through the whole thing. We didn't have to give evidence. In the original, we had to yeah. give um, evidence, um, all of us, even the people um, who had disabilities. And one of them, Stuart, was quite high needs, and he had to talk through a computer and could yeah. only use minimal words and stuff. So, um, yeah, so it ended up in the Appeal Court in Wellington, and we were victorious there, and they stopped... At, at that point at that point and they decided to introduce the family funded care system i mean that's a it's a hell of a um success story of the little guy mm, mm. you know fighting uh, david and goliath you know well and truly because i don't know how demoralized you feel after winning and then having an appeal did you expect an appeal yeah we uh, you, uh, you our have. lawyers warned us you yeah. know so we were lucky it's and if anybody wants to look it up it's uh, the atkinson versus minister of health case whoever's the, got the first um uh, sort of surname yes. the case gets called after <laughs> yeah, that yeah yeah now i mean this is all this is it's quite an incredible story and and mm. the reason we're talking about this and the reason you've left us yeah community yep. waikato is because you're going to be writing all of this in a book yeah um i've always had it in my head to write it down and i started a while yeah. ago but i keep um stopping it you know and i need to take time out and just write it yeah um so yeah i've decided now to put aside um, all my voluntary stuff I've got about five things I normally do yeah. I've been doing for quite a while and I really enjoy them but I need to do this um, yeah. and get it on paper um, and it's quite challenging for um, parents of disabled children to actually write things because often it's the mum at home and yeah. she's still got all that work to do you know so and yeah and it's been a hell of a journey and I'm still fighting in the court at the moment um, one of the things that came out of that case was that the um, disabled person would be the employee 
employer. Oh, yes. Uh, so um, I... I uh, no. and, and theoretically, in lots of circumstances, that is fantastic. Yep, yep. But... <laughs> in Shan's case, <laughs> if I complain to her, because she doesn't talk, she so if I have a health and safety issue, I can't say. So I yes. decided um, to take him back um, to court. I've done this as an individual now, so and it all sort of comes back to me financially engaging with a lawyer and all that kind of stuff. I've been really lucky. I've got Peter Craney, who's a QC down in Wellington. Um, he's done a lot of work for Etu, mm. and he's come on board. So um, we've already won the first case in the employment court, and they've said that the Ministry of Health is my employer, yes. and they have to take care of any health and safety stuff at home, but they've appealed it, of course. <laughs> so we've just gone through the appeal court process now, and um, yeah, so we're just waiting with the decision we were at the appeal court on the 13th of march so it takes up to three months for a decision to come out so i'm sitting there but they as like you asked before yeah. about the next court they can go to the supreme court um i'm not sure if they will but you never know i feel like and we've run out of time yeah um but we are definitely picking this up when you've written this book because i want to hear how this ends mm, okay yeah, cool <laughs> and i really appreciate you coming in and Pleasure. chatting with us today that's us for another week you've been listening to connect with community for more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.